invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14 as we, res- as we resume going through the first 11 verses. This will be part two of conspiracy and consecration. And I must profusely apologize because I started last week's message with a quote and uh, what, that I had found or that I'd heard, and when I found out who said it, I I have to go back and say that this is Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon quotes are one of the marks of a true church. Um, And he said, the same sun melts, wax, and hardens clay. The same gospel, the same Jesus melts some hearts to repentance and hardens others in their sins. And that was something that Pastor Spurgeon experienced firsthand as he ministered in the uh, 19th century uh, Victorian England, uh, a country at the time which would still be considered uh, very Christianized. And as he pastored and preached and administered the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one and the same gospel, some people were built up in the faith and were led to repentance and, and were, were prompted to grow in their maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that very same gospel which did that for them d- did a completely opposite, completely uh, 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 polarized response by causing others to become hard in their sin and to apostatize and to walk away from the Lord. Mark is showing us that very thing, that very truth in the polarized responses in, in these Uh, two responses to Jesus that can't be any more diametrically opposed to each other. We see the consecration of Mary on one hand, and then in the very same text, we see the conspiracy of by one of the Lord's own to join his enemies. Last week, we saw in verses one and two, the conspiracy of his foes. And if Leslie was, was here, she would, uh, she would just be giddy as not only is the first word, or there, there are two alliterations in, each, in, in the outline. The conspiracy of his foes in verses 1 and 2. Jesus has progressed from being merely an irritating nuisance to the religious leaders. Uh, now he has become a threat that must be dealt with because in recent days he has, he has escalated things He has boldly entered Jerusalem. He is publicly accepting being lauded and praised as the long-awaited Messiah. He is claiming to be be the one who has the right to sit on the throne and to lead God's people. And we saw that the first move of his, his authority was not to come in, set up camp, and kick out the Romans. He went into the temple and he kicked out not Gentiles, he kicked out Jews. And then... The following day, when the Sanhedrin ramped up their assault, we saw him flip their trickery, their carefully laid traps. Each and every one of them, he laid them on their heads and made them look like fools. And the crowd, which heard every word, loved it. And this only reaffirmed him as their Messiah in the eyes of the people. And so the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, they go back to their hovels, licking their wounds, and they begin plotting in earnest. It is time to do 
something. This, this cannot be put off any longer. Something must be done. Something must be done now. We must delay no further. This upstart rabbi, this would-be son of David, needs to be taken out of the picture. The only problem, and it's a big problem, is that there are 4 million Jews currently in the city who are uh, quite happy to, to laud Jesus as their Messiah. The entire, uh, the entire population has been swept up in this messianic zeal. And if the religious leaders are to so much as lay one pharisaical finger on him, there would be a massive riot on their hands. And so what do they do? They plot and they conspire to take him by stealth with sneakery, with underhandedness. And that requires them to wait at the minimum 10 days. Their, their plotting in earnest begins two days before the Passover. Uh, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we saw in this morning's reading, took eight days in total. So two plus eight is 10 days minimum before they would have the earliest opportunity to do anything. And then they would have their moment. Because Jesus will not be surrounded by the crowds. He will be alone and he will be vulnerable. That was the conspiracy of his foes. And that was followed by Mark's editorial uh, license to the consecration of his friend. And even though this, uh, when you look at John's account, this happened six days earlier, Mark inserts it here for the sake of, of emphasis. Here, we, Jesus received, as we saw, Jesus received not the animosity of his foes and rivals. What did he receive? He received affection. He received worship of a dear friend and of a follower. While he was reclining at the table enjoying the conversation with friends over dinner, a woman, according to Mark, Mary, according to John, approached Jesus with a stone, with a stone vial a very expensive, very costly perfume. And here's the nard that I ordered. And it did not disappoint. And Mary took this very expensive, very costly perfume, which we saw minimum would have fetched at least a year's wages, probably more. And she did the completely unexpected course of action. She didn't just dab it on her finger, and then dab him on the forehead. She broke the vial and poured the entire supply on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had been saying over and over and over again what? He was coming to Jerusalem and he would be killed. He would die. And were it not for Mary's actions, it would appear as if Jesus' words had fallen on entirely deaf ears. But Mary displayed both her love and her faith in that act. She, had, she apparently had been the only one who had really committed herself, not just physically, but spiritually, not just in body, but in heart, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to sit at the feet of Jesus and to listen. She seems to have done what the disciples have been unable to do. She is simply believing what Jesus has been saying at face value. So while he is still alive and with them in body, she is doing in advance 
what would have, what, an action that was reserved for those who had already died. Which Jesus points out very clearly in point eight. She has anointed his body beforehand for the burial. When he is yet still alive. That was the consecration of, by his follower. And then that leads now to verses four and five where we see the castigation by his followers. The castigation by, by the rest of his followers because of what one follower did. And to say that Mary caused a big reaction would be a vast understatement. Mark says, but some, in, in contrast to what Mary did, some were indignantly remarking to one another. Now, John 12, John does us a favor and he tells us that this, this instigation, that uh, this castigation was prompted by Judas. And we're going to look at that in just a minute. But I want you to notice, Mark doesn't point that out. Mark doesn't identify Judas as the one who's instigating this outburst. He rather lumps the men into a group by, by using the word some. He says some were indignantly remarking to one another. So while Judas may have started it, he was very, very quickly, very rapidly joined by at least one other possibly several others. And Mark might have written it this way to, to suggest that likely the remarks, certainly the remark of Judas and probably the, the remarks of, of, of this group aren't that far off from the thoughts and feelings of the whole group. And this reminds us that these men still have not arrived. And then that's a, that is an observa- a painful observation that we will see even after the resurrection of the Lord. These men have not arrived. On several occasions, we've seen Jesus say something about himself or what he expects of his disciples or or what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And each time when it didn't conform to what they had been taught, when what Jesus said didn't conform to their expectations and their standards... They just dismiss it. It is, it is a scandalous, offensive thing to them. Things like where he taught that the path to greatness is found in lording yourself over people, pushing people down, exerting your advantage. No, the path to greatness is found in lowliness. Being first means taking the initiative, taking, uh, uh, taking advantage. No, being first means comes by being last pursuing the kingdom of god being in the kingdom means that you will suffer and that you will need to exhibit selflessness that you will need to sacrifice and there were many occasions where jesus challenged his disciples in this manner and what jesus had to say was was hard and john records in John 6, verse 66, and no, there's nothing special about that verse. But John records many of his disciples withdrew. This is where Jesus has just said that you cannot come after me unless you eat my flesh and drink his blood. That's a hard statement. And John said many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And Among all the challenging and hard things that Jesus said, one stood out above them all. 
that on numerous occasions, despite Jesus teaching his disciples over and over again, despite Jesus using different ways, different metaphors, different analogies, different approaches, different tactics to teach them, this one teaching just seemed to be going right over their heads and obviously not down into their hearts. What truth, what teaching was that? His coming death. That he would be betrayed, that he would be handed over and killed by the religious leaders of Israel. These men have no room in their hearts for an assassinated Messiah, for a killed Messiah. They have no room in their hearts and minds for the burial of a Messiah because they can't accept his approaching death. So, of course, if, if his death is something that has just been, is not even an option on the table, why would we even consider anointing his body? Obviously, his, uh, anointing his body for burial would seem ludicrous because, of course, he's not really going to die. It's just figurative for something. And then you factor in the extravagant cost of the pure nard, of, of the pure undiluted perfume, and that is just salt in the wound of these disciples' unbelief. It is just, it is just simply unbelievable. And so Mark says they became indignant. And that's not just merely being annoyed or concerned, but it means being angry. It means being very angry, very upset. It means to to get hot, to be emotionally moved. This is the same word that Mark used when Jesus reprimanded uh, in Mark chapter 10, when he reprimanded the the disciples for for getting in the way of the parents when they brought their little children to Jesus. It's the same word Mark describes the 10 got when James and John saw their opportunity to... To, to, to take advantage of their proximity to Jesus. Mark says, verse 3, they were indignantly, some were indignantly remarking to one another. And Mark tells us what they were saying. Why was this perfume wasted? Why was this perfume wasted? As there's no room in their minds for the death of their Messiah, obviously anointing him would seem like an absolute waste of this incredibly precious and costly uh, possession. And it was to them, it was a meaningless act. They can't see any worth. They can't see any purpose. There was no profitable outcome uh, in what Mary did. All the opportunity, all the potential for profit and for purpose and for worthwhile just went right out the window. It is literally going up in vapor before their very eyes, or before their very noses. And we've all made poor choices. We've, we, we have all done things and thought back to ourselves, well, that was, that was a waste of time. That was a waste of energy. That was money that went down the toilet. I would have been better off doing something else. I would have been better off doing anything else with the resources that I had. That's how many of the disciples felt. Now, they're not going to come out and say bold face to Jesus that they don't believe his words because, you know, Peter did that one time and it didn't go very well for him, if you recall. 
What did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. None of the men want to get into the crossfire like that. And so they're going to try to give a plausible explanation for the, for the uh, sheer senselessness of Mary's act with the, with the perfume. And they'll say in verse 5, this is a waste because this, this perfume could have been sold. It might have been sold. It can't now because it's gone. But had you not done what you did with it, it might have been sold for at least 300 denarii. Again, a year's wages. That's a lot of money. If she hadn't done this, this money could have been given to the poor. That is a lot of empty stomachs that could have been fed. That, that is a lot of shivering bodies that could have been clothed. Bodies that shivered in the night Palestinian air. Now, let me ask you a question. Was this a legitimate concern? Or was it an opportunity for them to parade their good works before men? What do you think? Legitimate concern? Opportunity for, for good works? Well, both. Possibly, likely, both. There were a lot, many poor people in Israel. And Jesus had a regular habit of giving resource, of entrusting resources to the disciples and gave, gave to the poor. When Judas, uh, will eventually go out, do you know why everyone, uh, doesn't wonder where he's going? They, they presume, the gospels tell us, they presume he's going out to give money to the poor. Oh, where's Judas going? Oh, we don't need to worry about that. But also, giving alms to the poor was, was a characteristics of the scribes, not because they had a genuine concern for the poor, but because it was a way to very publicly parade one's piety. It was a way to look very religious, very spiritual in the eyes of the people. And that was one thing Jesus corrected uh, uh, when, as he was teaching his disciples in Matthew 6, 2, he tells them, when you, when you give to the poor, don't do what the hypocrites do, meaning scribes and Pharisees. What do they do? They sound a trumpet before them in the streets and in the synagogues when they give to the poor. Why? Because they're concerned about the poor? No. They want to be seen by men. They want to be honored by men. So I think both of those are plausible uh, uh, reasons why why the group as a whole is voicing concern and why they're agitated for why this potential uh, money was just wasted. But John gives us uh, the best insight into this question as to why they're so upset. John twelve four tells us that while many of the while some of the disciples chimed in and joined in. It was Judas who first spoke up. It was Judas who, bl- who blurted out this protest and voiced his heated concern over the wasted perfume. John twelve six includes this little note. John says, now, after repeating what Mark says here, hey, this money could have been given to the poor. John follows up and says, now, you know, lest anyone give give Judas the benefit of the doubt because he doesn't deserve it. John says, now he said this, meaning Judas, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
And he, and as he had the money box, he was the treasurer. As he had the money box, he used to pilfer. He used to steal. He used to help himself. He used to skim off the top. He used to leech what was put into it. Judas would take the money that was given to the, to the group, to team Jesus, and he would look to the left and look to the right. And when no one was watching, when, when he perceived that no one was the wiser, he would take some of the money out of that box, money that was supposed to go towards feeding the, uh, providing the needs and meeting the needs of the people, money that could have been, money that did go to the poor. And that money would somehow become Judas's money, and it would be spent on what Judas wanted to spend it on. And this was not something he just did once or twice. John says he, he, he used to do it. It was an ongoing thing. It was his pattern. Do you think Jesus knew this? Yeah. That verse that I, that I uh, quoted earlier from John 6, 66, later Jesus will go on to say in the very same passage, when, when the 12 uh, say, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else we can go. And Jesus says, it wasn't an I who chose you, and yet one of you is a devil. John says, he, he was speaking about Judas who was intending to betray him. So here, here, here's the scene. Here is no small amount of money literally going up in vapor before Judas's very nose, a year's wages. Whatever you make in a year, put that figure in your head. This is a large amount of money, a year's wages that Judas can no longer siphon off the, off the top from. A large swath of money that he can no longer take from or leech from or fudge the numbers with. All of that is now gone. All that opportunity for his own gain is gone. That's what's going on inside Judas's heart. So as Peter tells us, what's in the heart comes, or no, uh, Jesus says, what's in the heart comes out of the mouth. That is why Judas blurts out what he says, and he's masking it with with a false sense of piety. And unfortunately, he's had some influence on the group, so that they join in, and Mark tells us at the end of verse 3, and they, Judas and whoever has, however many else of them have, have joined in, and they were scolding her. This... This is something that they just couldn't let go. They just couldn't be quiet about it. They couldn't just let this go by. They needed to let her know how much this agitated them. They needed to, her to know. They needed to tell her how senseless and wasteful she had been with such a valuable commodity, with such a valuable possession. And there's, there's an irony in this. Don't, don't, don't let this pass you by. Mary, as one man said, Mary uncorked the vial of her worship to Judas, while at the same time, Judas uncorks the vial of his poison. Both are spreading through the room. John told us that, that the entire house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And we see in Mark's gospel that the whole house, that at least the room has been filled with the cacophony and the murmuring and the criticism of the disciples. Isn't that an analogy of the Christian life? Presence 
of tares among the wheat and of goats among the sheep. And at the same time, there is the slow but persistent growth, the slow and steady persistent growth of the wheat and of the sheep, all while the good shepherd shepherd sees both. Now this leads to verses 6 and 9, the commendation of his friend, verses 6 to 9. And we are led to a sudden and abrupt change in the discussion as now the Lord intervenes, which is what he always does for his people. And he does this, he intervenes by defending, first defending, and uh, which includes commending Mary. But Jesus said, they were scolding her, but Jesus steps in. And Jesus said, let her alone. Any one of you who has sons and daughters will inevitably say this to the son because he is annoying the daughter. Let her alone. Leave her be. He says, why, why do you bother her? Why are you saying this? Why are you doing what you're doing? And that question assumes that there is no good answer. They are... These men are not thinking with their minds. They're thinking with their feelings. They are emoting. And there is no good, solid reason, no substantial reason for them to, criti- for them to criticize Mary. And this isn't the first time that, that Jesus has had to step in and reprimand them and rebuke them because they have impulsively and wrongly rebuked and criticized and reprimanded others. And, and don't we see ourselves in, in these men right now? These, they are so much like us, so prone to exalt themselves and to lift themselves up by pushing down others. And thankfully, every time we see these men, these numbskulls doing that, we see Jesus calling them out on the spot and telling them to knock it off. He intervenes because he cares for his people. That happened in chapter nine when John, when James and John uh, came and reported that they had that they had hindered, that they had gotten away and stopped some unnamed disciple who was casting out demons. Why? Because they weren't. He wasn't doing it in the name of Jesus. No, he was doing it in the name of Jesus. Why did they stop him? Because they weren't among the twelve. They weren't with us. This happened in Mark chapter uh, ten when. Uh, the disciples got in the way and hindered the parents who were bringing, they were trying to bring their children, their small children to Jesus. Jesus had to stop and reprimand them there too. This happened before when they were uh, arguing over which one of them was the greatest. Jesus had to step in and reprimand them. And sadly, that's going to happen yet again in the upper room. They will get into another argument over which one of them is the greatest. And they're using every, every possible means to try to slam one another and bring one another low so that they can be elevated. These men are so prone to find fault in others, even if it means using an opportunity against their closest friends to rise above the rest. And now they're doing it by pushing this this sweet lady, this sweet woman, Mary, down. And Jesus tells them to stop it. Let her be. You have no good reason for one more word to come out of your mouth. So zip it. 
And it's not enough for, for Jesus to defend her. She, he now commends her. This is, this is a part of her defense. They have torn her down. He's going to lift her up. And Jesus says she's in the right because in verse 6, last, look at the last line of verse 6. She has done a good deed to me. She has done something very good for me. I think we, I think we use the word good so often in our, in our everyday language that we kind of, we're kind of desensitized to it. You know, hey, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Doing good. Doesn't really mean anything, does it? Kind of means okay. This word for good, it means really good. It means something beautiful, something noble, something excellent. Mary's good deed pleased the Lord. You could say that it blessed his soul. And I want you to think about the last time someone did something to you that blessed your soul. When was the last time, be it your spouse, be it your child, a, a good, dear friend, someone close to you, or perhaps even a stranger did something for you and brought a smile to your face and, and that action, that deed, turned your day around and the sun seemed to shine just a little bit brighter and the rain clouds just seemed to be so far away they couldn't touch you for the rest of the day. When was the last time you felt that? Do you know the emotion I'm talking about? What Mary did was beautiful. It had personal, intrinsic value to the Lord. It blessed his soul. It was certainly not a waste. Now Jesus explains himself in verses 7 to 8. Why was it good? Well, he says, for you always have the poor with you. You always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. And this tells us that charity is not a limited opportunity. In other words, you're concerned about the poor. You can do something for the poor whenever you want because you're always going to have the poor with you. And that's the sad truth of the world. You go, you, you, you open the history book, you, you open up the internet right now or Wikipedia, you point, you, you spin the roulette wheel and wh- whichever country the marble lands on, you pick a country, you pick a people, you pick an age, any era, you will find poor people. It, that is a given fact. You can feed the hungry, you can clothe those who are, who are wearing tattered and disheveled rags, you can help the, the homeless find shelter, you can find the, you can help the unemployed find work, you can edu- you can help the uneducated get an education so that, God willing, they can have a better tomorrow. But the fact is, is no matter how little or how much you do, no matter how much energy and time you expend, there will always be more that can be helped. That's just a fact of life. But you know what you don't always have? You know what opportunity you won't always have right in front of you? What does Jesus say? Last line of verse 7. You always will have the poor, but you won't always, you do not always have me. Now, what what does Jesus mean by that? does that mean you can, uh, a disciple, a believer can lose his salvation? 
that Jesus can turn his back on someone who's come to him in repentant faith? No. What this means is that the immediate bodily presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the, the bodily presence of God in the flesh for these individuals at the table, some, uh, uh, a reality that they have been privileged to enjoy for the last three years, that is not going to be a reality for them much longer. The last grains of sand of that reality are about to fall through the hourglass. They have had three years with him, day in and day out, three years to sit at his feet, to hear his words, to ask questions, to, to, to come to understand the hard things he's saying. And they've had three years to show him their devotion and obedience. They've had three years to bless him. You want to bless the poor? By all means. Jesus is not saying don't bless the poor. But you want to bless the poor? Go ahead. Second greatest commandment is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Guess what? The poor are among your neighbors. But what is the greatest commandment? What supersedes loving your neighbor? Loving God. Loving God with your whole self. And whereas you have the rest of your lives, however many days that is, you will have many opportunities henceforth to bless the poor and to lift them up and to bless their souls. But the time for you to bless God in the flesh and to see the satisfaction of his soul in his face, in his eyes, to see him smile with his physical body as you bless his soul, that opportunity is rapidly diminishing. You don't always have me now that in light of the totality of of, uh, scripture we know that we will have eternity to do this this is a this is a, a, a temporary stipulation for them they've had three years the time is coming where they won't have that blessing anymore mary saw her opportunity to do just that to to bless the god man as he stood or reclined in her immediate presence. She saw the opportunity to do that. She took that opportunity, and it paid dividends because it blessed Jesus' soul. It pleased God. It was a good thing. Jesus adds in verse 8 that she has done what she could, and at first glance, this kind of sounds like a little patronizing. We, we, we usually say this when we're when we're trying to we're trying to make the best out of a situation. You know, hey, don't be so hard on him. He, he, he did the best he could. This means the exact opposite. It, her action was proportionate to her opportunity. She gave 100% of what she could do. What she could do, she did. She seized the moment. She seized the opportunity. <clears throat> J. Vernon McGee puts it like this. So as he's comment, commenting on this, passage she spent herself to the uttermost and i can't help but feel a stab in my own conscience when i when i see those words of what she did and i ask myself can i say that how many of us can say that we were spent to the uttermost how many of us can would have done only what was would have been expected what would have been the 
the social standard, which, of course, would have just been opening the vial, not leaving it open far too long because it's expensive, just the littlest dab on your finger. Or remember, it would be like the IV, just the littlest drop comes out, and then you touch on the forehead, and it's done. You don't have to spend any more of your expensive perfume. You've done your duty. How many of us would have done only what was expected, only what was required, the minimum, and held back some, if not most, for ourselves? This passage is is showing and demonstrating that Mary is just like the widow that Jesus commended prior in chapter 12. These are two ladies who gave with all their might. And they gave till it hurt. She did what she could. And that was a good thing. And then in the second half of verse 8, Jesus affirms, and we looked at this last week, so I don't need to go too in-depth into this. But Jesus affirms that her gesture... I think this is the most remarkable explanation for why what she did was a good thing. Jesus is affirming that her gesture affirmed or uh, uh, expressed her faith. He says, she has anointed, she has consecrated, she has marked my body beforehand for the burial. That is, that is so remarkable. Her faith her trust in the Lord, it is so remarkable when it's contrasted with the dullness and the slowness of these men. I can't help but smirk every time I hear, I hear someone, a critic or a skeptic of the Bible, say that, that the Bible is anti-women and it's pro-patriarchy. If you don't have to read long in the New Testament to find out that the Bible p- paints many women very highly and it doesn't take any effort to try to hide the fact that these disciples, that these men who spent three years with Jesus, who were so privileged, they were, had not arrived. Verse 9, Jesus is so pleased by your devotion and act of worship. And, and perhaps he's also doing this as a rebuke, as a, as a little uh, rebuking jab to the disciples for castigating her. He does an incredibly remarkable thing, which he doesn't promise to anybody else in the totality of the gospel accounts. He promises that what she did will never be forgotten. You know, you and I, can often do things. I've done things that will never be forgotten. It's not for the, they won't be forgotten for the reasons that I don't want them to be forgotten. But how good is this? How, how, how beautiful is this that because she did a good thing, a, a, a wonderful, a beautiful, a Jesus approved thing, what she did will never be forgotten. He says, truly I say to you, and again, that, there's, there is a hint of a rebuking jab of, of Jesus pointing the finger at these men who spoke up. I, truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached, wherever the scriptures will go and where his gospel is preached and where the church is erected, what this woman, what Mary has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Mary and what she did will go on and will endure. That is, an, that is a remarkable honor. No one else 
No one else in Scripture. You know, there are many things that Peter did that we know that I'm sure Peter would have wanted to have evaporated off the pages of, of history. Jesus says what she did will be spoken and will be remembered for her because of the good things she did. And it's perhaps because of these words. Maybe this rebuke uh, really settled down in the hearts of these men in a good way because three of the men standing there will be the means by which Jesus' words will be fulfilled. Matthew, who wrote the first gospel. Peter, whose uh, church history tells us his memoirs became the, 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 the gospel of Mark. And then later, John. And John actually provides her name. We looked at why last week. Jesus had promised earlier to these men and to all who were standing by, maybe Mary was there. Maybe this prompted her, her, her action. He said in nine, Mark 9.41, whoever, whoever gives you a cup of water, whoever he is, Man or, or whoever they are, man or woman, noble or slave, whoever they are, truly I say to you, he or she will not lose his or her reward. And Jesus has seen to it, uh, uh, and the Holy Spirit has seen to it by inspiring these men to include this in the gospel account. Je- Mary has not lost her reward, has she? Isn't it good? Isn't it a, a wonderful and blessed thing to have Jesus as your advocate? Isn't it a good thing to have the God-man come to your defense and to lift you up after others have torn you down? I didn't, I didn't get a yes, so I'm going to... Should I ask again? Okay. Now, let's go to the crossover of the fraud. And this is, this is Mark's conclusion... To this, to this pericope. And he shows how polarized Jesus Christ, how polarizing Jesus Christ is. Mark, Mark has provided for us a uh, response sandwich. He began with those who want to harm Jesus. He began with those who hate Jesus the religious leaders who were conspiring against Jesus. And then Mark showed, uh, led us to his friends, who, one who welcomed him into his house and has hosted a great dinner in, in Jesus' honor. And then uh, the, the one which takes center stage, the woman who consecrated Jesus with this most remarkable display of, of worship and adoration and sacrifice and faith. I mean, that's certainly more than we've seen from any of these numbskull men, is it? Isn't it? And now we return to the other slice of bread. The other, the, 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 the last, um, the last slice of malintent. Now one of those, one of those very twelve crosses over he he breaks camp he makes he makes a break he departs and goes to the sanhedrin and he offers to betray jesus verse 10 then judas iscariot and what's interesting is that there's another judas in the group and i i think i think his name uh, after the, after this all happened i think his name became judas not iscariot 
I think, I think uh, this, that's the disciple who had three names. And no wonder, who wants to be called Judas when, when, with what Judas has come, come to be known by? Uh, Judas Iscariot is the only Judean disciple. The, ele- the other 11 all came from Galilee. We know Judas came from Judea because uh, uh, Iscariot is meanings of Iscarioth, and it's a town about 25 miles south of Jerusalem. So we know he's a Judean. But he is, and for, for the sake of emphasis, to, to show how dastardly this is, Mark tells us he was one of the 12. That shows us how painfully clear, how how underhanded, how scandalous, how dastardly this this action is by this supposed friend, by this supposed follower, by this uh, pretentious disciple. He is one of the twelve. He has been there since the beginning. He has heard every sermon. He has seen every miracle. He has, he, like Mary, and probably for longer than Mary, he has sat at the feet of Jesus. Let that sink in. He has firsthand seen Jesus fulfill everything that the Old Testament said Messiah would do. And now he breaks camp and fulfills Psalm 41.9. A friend has lifted up his heel against me. He lifts up his heel. He, he plays his cards and becomes an enemy of Christ and went off to the chief priests, Mark tells us, in order to betray him to them. Now, why would Judas do that? I mean, we, we know he loves money. We know, we know the Sanhedrin offers him money to betray Jesus. And we know that all he's going to get is 30 lousy pieces of silver. That's not that much money. That was about a month's wages. That's not enough to retire on. That's enough to, to live it for about a month. This is, for, when you take into account the magnitude of what Judas is doing, this is paltry pay. This is, this is, this is pennies. Why would Judas literally sell his soul for 30 lousy, stinking pieces of silver? Well, that, 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 that's a part of it. The money is a part of it, but I, I think the underlying issue is this. Judas has finally come to realize, and I think this is something that every apostate eventually comes to. Everyone who, uh, like the parable of the soils, everyone who is found out to be a seed, the, the, the soil of thorns or the soil uh, of, of rocky ground, Judas has finally come to realize and accept that Jesus of Nazareth is a Messiah that he can no longer get behind. I think that is a realization, that is a conclusion that every apostate, everyone who walk, who leaves the church and walks away from Christ eventually comes to. This is not a Christ that I can get behind. This is not a Christ that I can follow anymore. And rather 
then rather than change his expectations, rather than change his values, rather than accept Jesus for who Jesus is and allow himself to be changed, he's simply coming to terms with his disappointment in Jesus. He has come to the point where he said, this is not what I signed up for. I'm out. What did Judas sign up for? What did Judas want? Well, Judas was Judas wanted and Judas expected what practically all the Jews wanted and expected. He wanted a political Messiah. He wanted he wanted a king Messiah with power and authority and and undeniable influence, not this Messiah who calls for faith and repentance and humble service. He wants a Messiah who who serves and leads the people, not a, not a Messiah who calls for sacrifice. Judas wanted a king who would fight Israel's battles and bring prosperity and bring prominence to Israel once again. How can Judas get behind and follow and love and admire and trust a Messiah who says, let the little children, those snotly, dirty, filthy, stinky little children, let them come unto me. How can Judas get behind a Messiah who gets between Judas and Judas's money and who denies and keeps Judas from what Judas wants. How can Judas get behind a Messiah who makes demands on his soul? Instead of the bread of life, we could say Mary found the bread of life. Judas didn't get the bread of life. Judas got a lemon. And what these 30 pieces of stinking silver represent is him trying to squeeze out a few drops of lemonade from that lemon. And so Judas will now go back to his own life and perhaps try to find another Messiah, somebody else who will give him what he wants, a Messiah who will be more to his liking. And now the scene returns to the Sanhedrin. Matthew 26 tells us that Judas, uh, that, that, that the Sanhedrin is meeting in the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And there they are. They, have, they are licking their wounds and they are plotting and they are scheming how and when they are going to make their move. Remember, their their move can only be made at the soonest, 10 days away. Jesus, for the time being, in in their eyes, he is untouchable. They can't make a move. And there they are scheming and plotting when... In the middle of the night, who is that? And they can't believe their eyes when they open it up. It is one of the twelve. And he is offering to give them precisely what they want. He is offering to betray him over to them. And Jesus, they can't touch him because he will be surrounded by the people. But Judas is going to uh, tell them when and where Jesus will be alone and vulnerable. When and where he can be found. He's going to tell them, our Lord is a man of prayer. And he frequents the Garden Gethsemane across the Kidron River. 
on the Mount of Olives. And he likes to go there at the very latest hours of the night alone, and he likes to pray. You will find him there, and you will be able to take him. Now will you give me money? In verse 11, they were glad when they heard that. They, they did not expect this turn of events in their wildest dreams. A man, a betrayer, ready to give them the very thing they wanted most. Now, how should this impact us? We, we saw this morning, theology should impact us. I want you to see that everything happens according to God's sovereign plan. And I couldn't help but uh, reminisce of the book of Esther. You don't, some people like to say that Esther doesn't belong in the canon because God's name is nowhere in it. But you read the book of Esther and you see God's invisible hand in the whole thing. Orchestrating events. Orchestrating details. Rising people up, bringing them down. And like that, we see in this text, we see in the gospel, that these players, they, they think they are the ones who are controlling the narrative. But God is clearly behind the scenes, directing and ordaining everything to happen exactly as he's planned. What is he planning? He is planning for the Sanhedrin to kill Jesus at exactly the time that they don't want to kill Jesus. Do you see that? Do you think it's a coincidence that he is going to die on the Passover when the Passover, at the very hour the Passover lambs are being slaughtered? When the entire nation is reminiscing and recollecting and where little sons are asking their fathers, why are we doing this? And the fathers are telling them it's because God with a powerful outstretched arm saved us. Do you think it's a coincidence that the Son of Man is giving his life as a ransom at that very hour? Things are happening precisely as God has ordained it. And, and as we have seen many times when men have tried to kill Jesus, God intervenes and says, nope, it's not his hour yet. Someone else tries to seize Jesus and kill him. Nope. It's not his hour yet. And now these men, they say, we can't touch him yet, not for 10 days. And God says, nope, it is his hour. Do you see that? Do you see the, the sovereignty of God smacking off the pages of Scripture? And, and the irony is, it's a sad irony, but... The irony is, is the very thing that was such a scandalous offense to the twelve. You can't, the Messiah can't die. Judas's rejection of that claim is the very, this is so ironic, it's the very means he is going to be the very instrument by which those words of Jesus will come true. At any point did Judas stop and say, wait a minute, if I go through with this, I'm going to fulfill the very thing he said. Did he think that? I don't know. But sin makes you stupid. Everything happens according to God's 
sovereign plan. The second thing, and there are, there, there are beloved, there are, there, this text is so rich. I, am, I had to pick and choose. I want you to see also, the, the first is implicit. This is now explicit. There are two responses. There are only two responses, and there have been only two responses to the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel calls and the gospel demands for a decision to be made concerning Jesus Christ. You either repent and believe or you don't. You either accept him or you reject him. You hail him or you will cry. You will be among those crying, nail him. The gospel demands a decision to be made. There is ultimately no middle ground with Jesus, the same sun that melts the wax, hardens the clay. And given enough time and given enough uh, exposure, those who think they are on neutral middle ground will eventually be driven to one or the other. There are only two responses to Jesus Christ. And the answer is obviously not to change the message because Judas heard it all and he still Rejected Christ. This polarized responses, these two responses, is exactly what Mark wants you to see with the consecration that Mary gives him and the conspiracy of Judas with the Sanhedrin. So let me, as we close... Let me ask you, where are you today? Are you, do you think you're in this middle ground? Are you still trying to, to discern? Should you give your life over to the Lord? Should you, you know, should you really deny yourself? Should you really take up your cross? Why should you follow him? Look at how painful it is to be a Christian. Look how uncool it is to be a Christian. None of my friends are Christians. My boss isn't a Christian. If I start acting like a Christian, there's going to be a cost to pay at work. My family aren't Christians. If I, if I become a Christian, that's going to have ramifications. Where are you today? Beloved, there's no middle ground. You think you may be, you, you think you may have put your anchor down in the, in wherever you are and you're, you're taking time to deliberate and to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. The truth is your anchor hasn't hit the bottom of the ocean. And if you keep waiting and waiting and waiting, you will eventually drift off. Hebrews says, while it is yet today, do not harden your heart. Do not be a drifter. There are only two responses to the Lord Jesus Christ. How have you, how are you responding? Let's pray. Lord, how good you are. How good you are to us, how how gracious and kind you are to us. And as we are as we come to see these qualities about you, Lord, prompt us, cause us to respond and with even a modicum of the worship you deserve. If there is anyone here who has not yet seen your beauty and your grace and your mercy as it tr- truly is, remove the scales of their eyes. Bring them to a point where they will, not, will they will stop pursuing and seeking after the things of the world. Bring them and bring us to the point where 
for, where we might say with conviction, with her whole heart, to, for me to live is Christ. May that be true of everyone here. Amen.